We live in a country where simultaneously, you know, women are being subject to all sorts of misogyny and victimization and abuse. And, and at the same time, women are really very powerful. I'm Mitch. And I'm Missy. We're co-workers. He's the boss and we're married. And she's the boss. Together, we host Good Faith Weekly, a podcast on faith and culture. What could possibly go wrong? Tune in and find out. Missy. Welcome to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, Missy and I are going to catch up, talk about the latest news. And then later on the pod, we sat down with the senior editor at Slate, Daya Lithwick. Lithwick's got a brand new book out titled Lady Justice. We have a wonderful conversation with her about some very significant women who have been defending the Constitution over the last several years. You are not going to want to miss this. It is a great episode, so stay tuned. Hey, Missy, what's going on? Well, all things World Cup in our house. They are. It seems like uh, from uh, dawn to about uh, five o'clock is soccer is on or football. uh, The World Cup is on and it's been fun. We've got our youngest son back from college and he's been watching it nonstop. I don't know what um, deity he prayed to to get this arranged where <laughs> the World Cup was going to commence during his uh, break between college terms. Um, but whoever that is, I need to get on the docket because <laughs> today he was set up with um, a laptop showing one game simultaneously with the TV showing another game and just living his best life while uh, we were hard at work all day. So. <laughs> yeah, he is a soccer fanatic, and uh, this has been a really great time. I mean, after a hard semester, he's back home relaxing. And what a great way to relax, just watching the World Cup and enjoying life. Now, there is some controversy around the World Cup. In fact, I wrote about uh, some of that controversy in my column this week at goodfaithmedia.org. Talked a little bit about prior to the World Cup that Cutter had been awarded the World, uh, the World Cup. Uh, under some shady, uh, shady ongoings with business deals, there was some bribery. And then once they were awarded, uh, migrants from Africa and the Middle East came up to start the construction of the stadium. Uh, Amnesty International actually declared some of the work sites just atrocious. Uh, So there's a lot of controversy about the process of building the stadiums and the build up to the World Cup. And then also just Qatar's human rights uh, have really been in question, such as their their strict uh, limitations to same-sex relationships, uh, to women's rights, to free speech, uh, and it's caused quite a stir because the world, I mean, literally, the world is coming to Qatar uh, to play in this global tournament, and so all eyes are on this small country, and so a lot of discussions taking place. Yeah, a lot of awareness of human rights issues with, um, now I thought you were going to say the controversy between Qatar versus Qatar. So <laughs> well, that, that's uh, what we can discuss uh, later. But um, uh, tomato, tomato, I d- Qatar, I don't Qatar. Know which, and I have blue dress. Seen gold all dress. of the uh, late night uh, hosts talk about the pronunciation and, and which one it is. I'm here to say I don't know. 
but I do know that shining a light on human rights is is uh, important, and I hope that that if nothing else good comes from this, maybe some awareness and some social change will happen globally. Yeah, absolutely. And because it's such a global stage, and a lot of emphasis has been up on Qatar and some of the violations uh, regarding human rights in their country, there's also something else at play within the World Cup. And this week, the United States advanced to the round of 16. They did. But they did so by uh, beating the country of Iran, one to nil. Iran. Iran. (laughs) (laughs) All these pronunciation controversies. You guys can at us if we're doing it wrong. That's exactly right. But but during uh, Iran's uh, World Cup stint, their three games that they played, a lot of the players were very outspoken about what was going on in their own country regarding women's rights and how women are treated in uh, Iran. And it, it caused quite a stir uh, in the World Cup as well as globally. Absolutely. I was a little worried. I was listening to the news um, the day after the game and you know, I caught it, a snippet of a story they were doing and, and just a little worrisome about what's going to happen when they go home. I know they were kind of told or threatened um, before the game that, you know, their behavior might affect how their family was treated back home. And so that, I just can't, I can't imagine. I'm I'm super excited that the U.S. advanced and it was it was a fun game to watch. Um, but I sat and watched it and just couldn't help but think of the difference in pressure and just what our players are going through. They're out there to play a game and obviously the best at at their craft within our country and looking at Iranian players or players from other parts of the world who are just dealing with so much more than just playing the sport. And I don't know, it was just, it, it was hard to grapple with. It was. And, uh, you know, last thing I want to say about it is that as we watched the United States team uh, advance and their, their defeat of uh, Iran and the celebration afterwards, but then you also saw the cameras pan, pan to the Iranian players and for me, it just put the entire tournament into perspective because at the end of the day, this is still a game. But the reality is these individuals who play the game do not play it in a vacuum. They come from countries that are war-torn. They come from countries that deny human rights to people. And when players such as the Iranian players did take a stand for human rights, it's going to cost them something. Mm -hmm. And hopefully it's not going to cost them the ultimate price. In some cases it has throughout history, not just in Iran, but in other countries. And so our prayers are with them. We stand beside them. We admire the stance that they took over the last two weeks and the world is watching you, Iran. We, Iran, we, we see what is happening. We stand with these women. We stand with these players who are supporting these women. We need equal rights. We need human rights. And the global gaze is upon you, and you need to do the right thing. 
Absolutely. So another big uh, happening this week that we should note is that the Senate passed marriage equality earlier this week, and that's that's pretty big. It's news. big. It's huge. I mean, uh, we are coming down to. Uh, a different Congress starting in January. The Senate will stay in the hands of Democrats. Uh, the House will revert to uh, Republican control. And when that happens, there's probably going to be a lot of uh, grit, you know, a lot of uh, Grid- gridlock. Is gridlock. Yeah, for. yeah, gridlock. <laughs> uh, and and so this really is probably one of the last great legislative items on President Biden's agenda that he can get past without making a lot of deep compromises. And it's already passed the Senate, which means it got past uh, Joe Manchin and Kristen Sinema. Well, I don't know if you noticed, but our two senators both voted no. Shocker! Shocker! <laughs> so, you know. Uh, but, uh, yeah, uh, it's passed the Senate. It's on to the House. Hopefully that gets passed uh and it's fast-tracked to President Biden's desk where he can sign it, and it will be codified. And that's going to be interesting because this Supreme Court, who seems to be hell-bent on sending precedent back to the states for their decision, if this becomes a federal law, Mm -hmm. then what will the Supreme Court do? Well, since you mentioned the Supreme Court. (laughs) (laughs) Wow, what a lead-in. I know. Great segue. I'm learning, right? Getting better every day. Uh, We sat down today with Dahlia Lithwick to talk about her new book, Lady Justice, about women um, during the Trump administration and how they organized and uh, fought through the, the court system and the law to make sure really to save us from ourselves in many instances. And so... Uh, it was a fantastic conversation. Guys, get this book. It is we're l- leading into Christmas season. Buy this book for for all of the re- everyone in your life, but in particular the women in your life. I um, listened to it, you know, over the last week, and I was out getting ready for you know to host Thanksgiving, so I was doing a lot of running around, and I just walked around the stores just with chills um as as dahlia told these stories of these women um so inspiring and a little scary at times realizing how fragile things were and and who you know who was working in the background to make sure that that uh, things were going to be okay but it's a great book yeah, it's a fantastic book and our conversation with dahlia is outstanding we just are reminded through our conversation with her and the book that you don't have to be famous, powerful, or wealthy to make a difference because the women, majority of the women that she points out, these female lawyers, were going about their business, going about their daily work that saw a need and rose up to meet that need and changed the world. So it is a great interview. Stay tuned. You're really going to enjoy it. Hey listeners, check us out online at goodfaithmedia.org and follow us on social at gfmedia.org. We'd love for you to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast. I'm new here and could really use the feedback, but only if it's glowing. Thanks for listening. (laughs) 
Welcome back to Good Faith Weekly. On this episode, we've got a very special guest with us all the way from Toronto, Canada today. Dahlia Lithwick is a senior editor at Slate, where she has written her Supreme Court dispatches and jurisprudence columns since 1999. Her work has also appeared in the New York Times, Harper's, The New Yorker, The Washington Post, The New Republic, and Commentary, among other places. She is host of Amicus, State's award-winning bi-weekly podcast about the law and the Supreme Court. In 2018, Lithwick received an American Constitution Society Progressive Champion Award and the Hillman Prize for Opinion Analysis. She won a 2013 National Magazine Award for her columns on the Affordable Care Act. She has been twice awarded on an, an online journalism award for her legal commentary. She was inducted into the American Academy for Arts and Sciences in October 2018. She earned a BA in English from Yale University and her JD degree from Stanford University. Her new book, Lady Justice, has been released and currently available wherever you purchase your books. Dahlia, welcome to Good Faith Weekly. Thank you so much for having me. So Dahlia, begin by telling us about your motivation to write the book. I think that I started writing this in 2017. So to be clear, this was not, you know, a post-Trump or post-Dobbs book. This was very much a book that I was writing in the midst of uh, the Trump years, which, you know, as a legal journalist who was covering a lot of the legal stories that were coming up at the time, this was the water I was swimming in all, you know, every day, all day. There was some lawsuit, there was some trial, there was some sort of legal uh, controversy. And so in some sense, I think I wanted to do the simple act of making a, a record, of creating a sort of historical record of things that we kind of know happened, but maybe we forgot. And so whatever it was, whether it was the Muslim ban or whether it was, you know, keeping teenage migrants at the border from being able to terminate a pregnancy, I wanted to keep a record. That was, I think, a big part of the animating idea. And then the other was I was very, very struck very quickly in covering these lawsuits in the Trump years how prevalent women were everywhere in the legal kind of resistance. And I think I tell the story in the book of, you know, the first four out of five judges who enjoined the Muslim ban, all women, people showing up at the airports, just volunteering to be lawyers for refugees and asylum seekers, overwhelmingly women lawyers. And so I think I, I experienced those years through this lens of, wow, we live in a country where simultaneously, you know, women are being subject to all sorts of misogyny and, you know, victimization and really abuse. And, and at the same time, women are really very powerful if they have the law as a tool. And maybe the last answer I would say is that, you know, we're now looking at women in Iran, right, who don't have access to the levers of power. They don't have access to members of Congress or courtrooms or, you know, they're just putting their bodies on the streets. And that's an amazing thing. Amazing. But we actually do have access to the ability to go into court and file a, uh, get an injunction or to file some constitutional claim. And so I think I a little bit wanted to lift up the idea that there is this really amazing, powerful channel to make change and to celebrate the women who did that. 
Well, you did it beautifully. And we're going to talk uh, a little bit more specifically about some of those uh, incredible strong women uh, uh, later on in the interview. But you begin the book by demonstrating this roller coaster ride that we Americans, especially women in America, have been on over the last several years. You mentioned some positive steps forward, such as the case in 2016, where finally three female justices heard an actual abortion case, which that was all positive. But then in November 2016, everything changed. Donald Trump becomes president of the United States, and you open the book up, and as you open it, you remind readers about that atrocious chant heard at Trump rallies, lock her up, lock her up. And that really sets the tone for the resistance that we see during Trump's administration and post-Trump across our country. But what was so startling to me as you set the tone for this book, and I'm glad you started out with uh, talking about the positive examples because it's all filled throughout the book, but you set the tone at what's at stake. You conclude that the chant was not mere political slogan, but it was a promise. That was chilling, Dahlia. So tell us exactly what you meant by that statement. Well, I think you've exactly defined it, I think, perfectly, which is I wrote this book before the Dobbs decision came down. And in fact, I had to madly in four or five days after the Dobbs decision came down, had to rethink and rewrite big chunks of, you know, the the uh introductory section, the the section on abortion and the epilogue. And so what you're catching is the thing that I was really aware of, which is by the time this book went to print in July, women were quite literally being locked out, right? I mean, women in Texas, women in Alabama, women in Oklahoma, we're seeing it now more and more. We will continue to see it as states pass draconian laws. And so, yeah, this thing that we dismissed as political rhetoric, lock her up, which, as you say, you know, was initially directed at Hillary Clinton, at Trump rallies. But over the Trump years, it was directed at Nancy Pelosi. It was directed at Christine Blasey Ford. It was directed at AOC. It was directed at any woman who dared to speak out in public life. And I think that the the arc I wanted to trace a little bit was what happens when that goes from being just the threat, the way Donald Trump used it, it was the threat of using the machinery of the United States Justice Department and the legal system to put Hillary Clinton in jail for emails, right, on the wrong server, which is extra ironic right now. But that that idea that sounded to us like a false claim or rhetoric was actually being made manifest by the time Dobbs came down and we started to live in a world where a woman was going to jail in Texas for a fetal endangerment, a woman was in jail in Oklahoma for a, a trying to terminate her own pregnancy. And so I think one of the things I wanted to try to illuminate in the book is this line between the law as the thing that makes us free and equal as women and the thing that persecutes, prosecutes, and incarcerates us as women. And I think that the story that you're telling is the thing that I landed on post-Dobbs, which is that the, the curtain is really thin between those two things. 
And that women of my generation, of your generation, who just grew up thinking this stuff was all in the rearview mirror, right? Because we grew up post-Roe. We grew up, you know, in a time of uh, unprecedented freedom for women to land smack in the middle of the possibility that if you live in Texas now, if you live in Mississippi now, you can go to jail for using drugs while you're pregnant. That veil is so thin. And that, I think, is where I landed after Dobbs. And so I wanted to maybe both use it as the explanation for why I think women are so quick to recognize this move, because we feel it in our bones, but also how perilous this moment is that the Constitution, the 14th Amendment, you know, the, the promises of due process and privacy that made women so free could be melted down and weaponized to put women in jail and that that could happen in the course of a year. When I read that and then also other snippets throughout the entirety of the book, I was just reminded that for so long, those of us who have been uh, center, left of center, and on the left have looked at right-wing politicians and preachers in our, uh, in our sphere of the world as using these ki- this kind of language as mere rhetoric to try to gain some kind of upper hand on their opponent, uh, that, but they didn't really necessarily mean it. No longer, Dahlia. They mean it. They mean it and are attempting to enact it. And so that's what terrifies us. And it was just, your book was just a great reminder of what's at stake uh, in that one slogan, which is so powerful, lock her up, and we are now seeing it as you articulated so Dahlia, we don't, we aren't able to, you know, talk about all of the amazing women that you mentioned in the book, but I do want to um, give our listeners a little bit of a teaser about Polly Murray. I had not heard of her. Um, however, when I was listening to this section as I was out running errands, I just had chills the entire time. So can you give our, our listeners a little teaser about Polly and, and, and why Polly is so important? Missy, if this book does nothing but create a generation of Polly Murray, like, wild, rabid Polly Murray fans, like, I will be satisfied because I felt the way you did. I How how I went through three years of law school, never learned about Polly Murray, have been a legal journalist for decades. Polly Murray is kind of tacked on so often as an afterthought. Um, I will say I first started hearing about Polly Murray because Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg always credited Polly Murray, always was at pains to say, I stand on the shoulders of giants and Polly Murray is one of them. And I think for those of us who watched the RVG movies or, you know, who thought about her life, that kind of didn't penetrate. We were just like, oh, you know, some unknown legal pioneer. And it wasn't until really I started reading deeply around the time that I was working on the book, the amazing documentary, uh, I, uh, My Name is Polly Murray, that um, Betsy West and Julie Cohen did uh, two years ago, rocked my world. I think I watched it three times, all because it was the story of somebody that history has almost completely forgotten. And somebody who single-handedly, before Thurgood Marshall, before RBG, before so many of the legal icons that we hold up as using the 14th Amendment to create the modern idea of race equality, gender equality, later what would become LGBTQ equality, that was done by one person who constitutional history almost completely forgot. And so I am as obsessed as you are. I I will just say briefly, and folks should definitely 
you know, either read, uh, there's some amazing books about her. The film is amazing. I talk about her in the introduction. But I think that the what I would just say is that Polly Murray single-handedly, as a person who couldn't get into UNC because black, couldn't get into uh, uh, the, her first choice law school because a woman. So goes through life, and, and I should say Polly Murray um, would have identified as gender nonconforming today. Po- Polly Murray genuinely believed that she was a man who was in a woman's body. But long before we had the constitutional language to say we can use the 14th Amendment to protect uh, uh, groups. Polly Murray had thought of this and had, you know, written a law school paper that, unbeknownst to Polly Murray, gets used as the spine of the Brown versus Board of Education litigation. Nobody credits Polly Murray. Polly Murray finds out years later. RBG uses Polly Murray's work, this time accredited to Polly Murray, first in one of the first major gender equality cases. And so I think I use Polly Murray both because I'm obsessed with Polly Murray as you are and because I get goosebumps, but also because I just think this is an avatar for how women have changed the world, that you don't always get the throw pillows and the mugs and the T-shirts. You don't get credit. You don't get libraries named after you. Sometimes you just toil away in your vineyards for decades. And history takes your work gladly and uses it to change, you know, the rock face of constitutional history. And you don't get credit. And maybe there's something to be learned for that kind of story, because for me, so many of the women in the book are that story. Well, I will propose now that you and I work on the tote bag. We will do that. <laughs> <laughs> we'll put it out there. <laughs> I love that. Uh, well, as you said, there are so many uh, brilliant, strong uh, women that uh, women lawyers that you write about in this book, and Polly Murray certainly sets the stage for what we read about in the following chapters. Like Missy said, we would love to sit here and talk to you about every chapter because it was just absolutely wonderful. But there's one that we want you to just kind of touch on because it really meant a lot to us, and it was what happened after the Muslim ban. And Becca Heller, who's the co-founder of Refugee Assistant Project after the Trump administration initiated the Muslim ban, she worked tirelessly on behalf of these uh, individuals who were sometimes in the air, in the air, arriving at the United States to be turned away. So tell us a little bit about uh, Becca Heller. Becca is one of my most favorite characters because so many of the other characters in the book, you know, Sally Yates, even Anita Hill, you know, Vanita Gupta, talk about the law with such reverence, right? With this kind of Jimmy Stewart you know, the law will make us all better and free. And Becca is having none of that. I mean, Becca is just almost perfectly cynical and transactional. Becca was incredibly young. Uh, she was really just out of law school um, and, and had built this amazing IRAP, this amazing project that was giving refugees uh, access to attorneys because, of course— we look at refugees and we think they're having an immigration problem. No, they're having a lawyer problem. And if you give them access to a pro bono attorney, they can prevail. And that was a, a, an amazing, they b- scaled up a tiny little you know shop that they had built at Yale Law School and built it into IRAP. And I, I like her as a character because she's very um, clear-eyed. 
And she essentially says, you know, the law is BS. I'm just using the master's tools to take down the master's house. I have no illusions about the law and the rule of law. And that's really a, you know, kind of counter-programming some of the other characters who really believe deeply uh, that the law makes us better and, and more free. And so what she did essentially was that she got wind that the travel ban was coming. It was right after the Trump inauguration. Donald Trump had promised on the campaign trail over and over again that he was going to shut down immigration to the United States from all Muslim countries. That was slightly laundered by the time we got the travel ban. He wasn't saying it was a Muslim ban. It just happened to be only from majority Muslim nations. Um, And Becca got wind of it, and she basically created what I think I call the constitutional flash mob. She just got lawyers from around the country to show up at airports. Often they were like you know, divorced lawyers or real estate lawyers or tax attorneys, but they just showed up at airports. And as you said, there were people coming off planes who had sold all their earthly possessions in Afghanistan and Iraq, who were seeking asylum, who were seeking, uh, 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 you know, green cards and other uh, uh, lawful uh, reasons to enter, who had been approved. And in mid-flight, we're told, you're going to have to go back to where you came from. Some of them had nowhere to go. Some of them were being sent back to countries that they didn't even belong in. And some of them were sending, being sent back to countries that were materially unsafe for them. And the administration was just like, nope, this is the law. So what I love about Becca is it's a story of kind of creating this massive wave of lawyers who all showed up and held up signs in the airports, you know, at JFK, at SeaTac, at, you know, at Dulles, saying, essentially, I'll be your lawyer, and helping these people enter the country. And, you know, the travel ban took several trips back and forth all the way to the Supreme Court. In the end of the day, the Supreme Court a much changed, more benign travel ban was approved by the Supreme Court. But to me, I love the story both because it's a story of Becca as somebody who just said, no, I'm not going to put up with this, who inspired you know tens and thousands of people around the country to stop what they were doing and do the right thing. But also because I think it's, like I said, a story of we have access to so much power. It's just uncanny what you can do. And so for me, it's a story of just how the law and legal change and justice happens from the ground up, not from the top down. And I think that's a story we kind of forget sometimes. We wait for like the Bob Mullers or, you know, now we're, we're waiting for Merrick Garland. We're waiting for some hero to save us. And I love Becca's story because she like showed up at the airport in a like ratty hoodie and jeans and changed the world. Love that. I love the flash mob <laughs> analogy. And now I'm going to spend the rest of the day deciding what song goes <laughs> with the flash mob and imagining the musical adaptation of the love whole it. story. Love so. it. <laughs> okay, Dahlia, before we came on this interview, Mitch had told me that he wanted to talk about the book, but also the Supreme Court. I told him, I, I thought maybe that wasn't the best idea. The book was so great. There's so much to talk about. We've recently interviewed Evan Milligan um, of the Merrill v. Milligan case. We'd talked about that. We uh, had Jennifer Hawks from the BJC on to talk about the Supreme Court. We've kind of camped out quite a while in the Supreme Court. thought, you know, maybe we should uh, not visit about that so much. However, I then um, turned on your recent interview with Heather Cox Richardson, who adore her. She kept us sane for um, a good long while now. Um, and you've convinced me otherwise, <laughs> that we need to be talking about the Supreme Court. Um, 
You stated that one of the mistakes being made is that individual cases are being covered, but the Supreme Court as an institution is not covered. Um, that polls are suggesting that Americans, you know, are questioning more and more the legitimacy of the court, and we've perhaps created a bit of a delusion around what the Supreme Court is. So in order to help those um, like me who may be thinking, oh, I'm tired of talking about the Supreme Court or hearing about it, tell us why this is so important and why we need to be um, continuing to have these conversations. I mean, I think this is one of the reasons I was so excited to be in conversation with the two of you, because I think that we live in a really paradoxical moment with the U.S. Supreme Court. And I've been covering the Supreme Court since my 23rd term, so I've <laughs> done this for a long time. And I think that on the one hand, for a secular country, the United States has an almost religious relationship with the Supreme Court, right? And and in some ways, that's by design, right? It's built like a temple. The judges walk around in black robes. They have clerks who minister to their every need. You know, they issue these kind of oracular proclamations. There's no press conferences. There's no access to the justices. In many ways, this is a country that to the extent there is a sacred document, it's the Constitution. To the extent there is a sacred body, it's the court, right? So that's its own paradox, because I think it's what leads people to have this just very trusting, magical thinking around the court. You know, They're, they must be doing balls and strikes because they tell us they are. Uh, they must be, you know, pure oracles who have no political predispositions or views because they keep telling us that at their confirmation hearing. So in a weird way, we have this quasi-religious relationship with the court, except the court is meant to be a secular body, right? It is meant to be totally divorced and, and, and disaggregated from faith. And yet, I know we're going to talk about this, this is a court that is the most faith-based court we've ever had in history and is explicitly issuing, I would say, faith-based rulings that are rooted in uh, theology and, and doctrine. And so then you're in this weird double loop where on the one hand, Americans are just so apt to say, well, you know, I've trusted the court forever. I'm going to keep trusting the court. And at the same time, the court, which is supposed to be acting as fundamentally a secular enterprise looking out for the interest of all Americans is time and time again, and we can talk about these cases, if you want putting a thumb on the scale for religion and not all religion, you know, for certain kinds of religion that happens to map onto the faiths of some of the justices. So I think that part of the problem is, and this is the big, the first half of your question, Missy, is that I think it's taken Americans a very long time to wake up from that first wrong-headed, you know, kind of presupposition that, you know, the court is fundamentally just, it is fundamentally fair, you know, partisan political uh, confirmation hearings are icky, but at the end of the day, these guys are doing justice, right? And and that's, I think we've been telling ourselves that, and that progressives have been telling themselves that for decades, right? I think I said on Heather's show, we had like a good seven minutes in there when the court was doing, you know, Brown v. Board, and they were doing, you know, Cooper v. Aaron, and, you know, we got Roe, and we got Casey, and nobody is belittling the good progressive work of the Warren Court, but that was a blink 
in time. And as long as I've been covering the court, it's been fundamentally very conservative. And uh, after the Trump appointees come on, uh, extremely conservative. We now have the most conservative court we've had in over 100 years. So I think that first set of illusions is something we've had to kind of peel our way through. And as you noted, we are now looking at a court that has the lowest um, you know, uh, uh, public approval ratings uh, since there's been polling. And we can talk about why. But I think the more interesting problem is having sort of pulled our way through that first thicket of weeds about, oh, wait, maybe this institution isn't nine brains in a vat doing justice. We're now in this second loop where the court is imposing a deeply theological worldview and telling us that it's doing it from a secular viewpoint. And I think that second thing is almost more challenging than the first thing, because it's very, very hard for people to see the ways in which religion is inflecting on everything coming out of the court. And maybe the last thing I'll say, because it could be a jumping off point to think about this, is that last week, uh, a huge story breaks in the news about how, you know, Justice Alito uh, reportedly told some very, very wealthy uh, uh, donors who were paying a lot of money to influence the justices that the holding uh, in Hobby Lobby, which is a religious liberty case, uh, what the was, result was going to be and that he was authoring it. And the press got super myopic about focusing on the leak. They he had said something at a dinner party. That's not the issue. The issue is that across the street from the court, there was an institution that was gathering money from wealthy, principally religious donors to influence the justices. That's the story. And we're not talking about that. And that, I think, goes to that like double loop of not knowing how to think about and talk about what's going on at the court. Oh my gosh. I got so many follow-up questions. <laughs> uh, and so I, and I apologize because this is, this is, I'm about to like really geek out here uh, when it comes to, to this discussion, but I, I want to go back a little bit because we're seeing some flaws, not only at the Supreme court, but in many of our institutions. Um, and I'm just going to ask you this point blank because we deal with this uh, in the faith realm as well. And that is deconstructing the mythology surrounding origin. And what I mean by this is that here we've got this incredible system that we have been practicing for you know over 200 years now. But the reality is this entire system was flawed from the beginning. It doesn't make it evil necessarily, it means that we got to strive to make it better because it was built upon a flawed system. I'm indigenous. I'm a citizen of the Muscogee Creek Nation here in Oklahoma. And I think about how the founders created these in, you know, this incredible system. But even in that creation, it was a flawed creation because it excluded a majority of people when they said that we were all made uh, you know, by our creator and were equal before the law, that was a lie. And so because it has been built upon this uh, unlevel foundation, what has been built afterwards is constructed on a faulty foundation. So I'm not suggesting we, we tear everything up and burn it down and start over again. But I think we have to acknowledge that. And do you see a lot of our problems today based upon this false mythology that we have bought into? 
100%. And I'm so glad you rooted your question in, you know, indigenous peoples, because you keep thinking you understand this lesson, right? I mean, I just wrote a book in which I essentially said what you said, you know, the system is working precisely as it was intended to work, right? That's why we have the Electoral College, which distorts majority rule. That's why we have a Senate that distorts majority rule. That's why we have, you know, in every single level, we have a system that was designed to give wealthy white men who held land and, and some of them slaves, an extra thumb on the scale, right? And so when people say, like, I don't understand how you could get a result like Dobbs if 20% of the population thinks this way. I don't understand how you can get a result like Bruin, the gun case that came down last year, when 80% of Americans want gun control. Well, this is the reason, because you have a system with layers upon layers of mechanisms that protect minority rule. And so that works as designed. We shouldn't be shocked. We should, as you just said, uh, be really mindful that you would have to take apart all the archaic protections, whether it's the Electoral College, whether it's the Senate, um, that make sure that minorities continue to hold sway, right? So that's the first thing. The second thing is I keep thinking I know this, that I understand this. And then I'll have an interview like I had after the ICWA, the Indian Child Welfare Act case that was just heard at the case. And I interviewed Professor Maggie Blackhawk, and she reminded me that for indigenous peoples, you can't even think in terms of rights. She wouldn't let me use the word rights because, like, her point was, and this just, my mind exploded because I can think in terms of rights and race because that's how I've been taught to think. And her point was indigenous people never had rights. They were not given rights, <laughs> that this is a colonial relationship with protections, certainly, but not rights and freedom the way we think about rights and freedom in the Constitution. And it reminded me exactly of the point you just made, which is we tell this set of stories and fables, and then we varnish them, and we turtle wax them, and then we polish them, and then we seal them in amber about the way things were. And it decenters all the people who had no choices, no options, no vote, no representation in that system. And to continue to say, we're not going to teach this, we're not going to think about it, we're not going to allow our children to think about it, we're not going to talk about, you know, and, and, and the cases you listed, you know, when you're talking about Merrill, um, you know, the, all the cases this year, the affirmative action cases at, at the court and the Indian Child Welfare Act are all cases about erasing that history and saying fundamentally the system works. The system works because we say it works and, you know, it doesn't matter who has lost out historically. And so I think you're right. I think it's it's that almost, um, you know, sin within a sin of ignoring the intention of the original architecture of democracy, ignoring the ways in which it always had a thumb on the scale for certain people, and then refusing to engage on the merits <laughs> with critiques of that system, you know, saying we're not going to teach critical race theory, we're not going to even tolerate affirmative action because it, you know, uh, uh, discriminates against white people, we're not going to tolerate the Indian Child Welfare Act because it discriminates against white people. And I think that second hiccup is the one that you're, you know, really lifting up, which is what do we do about the fact that we're so in love with this story that we are polishing and polishing and polishing that we're like sealing it into perpetuity without reckoning with its flaws. When I bring up the uh, Indian Child, uh, uh, Indian Child uh, Welfare Act, um, 
you know, I wrote a, a little essay about that a couple of weeks ago, goodfaithmedia.org. And I was reading the facts of that case and it was just startling to me. And it was very personal to me, Dahlia, because my great grandmother in 1918 was sent to Shilako Agricultural School because white people could provide her a quote unquote better life. And it was the same argument that we were hearing in 2020, 2022. And it was just appalling. It's like, you know, here we are right back where we were years, decades, centuries ago. And that's just one example because we're dealing with this uh, across the board on many, many different issues. And so uh, another follow-up question that I have for you, and you alluded to it, is this debate about original intent versus a living constitution. We deal with that in the faith world all the time. People just think, well, if we can just interpret what, you know, the original writers said, then, you know, everything's going to be right. Well, there's problemat- There's problems with that. It's very problematic philosophy. And I think the same thing could be, could, could hold true for the law as well. And it's out of this mythology that somehow the framers were perfect that the Constitution is perfect. But we can never really truly get back to that original intent because it's all about interpreting the law or interpreting the Bible. So can you talk a little bit about that struggle and debate between original intent and a living versus a living Constitution? I mean, I think I might slightly push back only insofar as there has never really been a proponent of a living constitution. I think it is a construct that was invented by the proponents of originalism to be a kind of straw man, right? So I think that, you know, to the best of my knowledge, I think maybe former Justice David Souter took a run at sort of describing what he thought a living constitution might be. But with very few exceptions, we don't have a lot of justices who um, adhere to the proposition that, you know, there is no there there. You just make it up as you go along, you know, that every generation gets to reinvent things. And so I, I slightly balk at defending it only because I don't think it's a construct that has ever really had much salience. I think that if you look at what Elena Kagan is doing, what Justice Breyer is doing, what Ruth Bader Ginsburg is doing. It's all originalism. <laughs> it's just kind of what flavor of originalism. And so I think I just don't want to fall into the trap of using their framing because I think that they, you find yourself defending something that nobody actually ever defended. So that's the first, my first caveat. The second is the problem with originalism as it's being practiced today is that it's not even originalism. So even if you were to say, okay, we're in the sort of high watermark, the zenith of originalism at the Supreme Court, then you get an opinion like Dobbs, the abortion decision that purports to be originalism, and in fact is nothing of the sort, that is just cherry picking history, deciding when the clock starts and when it stops and which experts we cite. And you realize, so I think that in some sense, both poles of the, of the, of the test are not factually right. Originalism is not, as, as at least as the 
court as constituted today is doing originalism is really not anything like what, say, Justice Scalia or Robert Bork in academic writings were saying, uh, you know, this is originalism is a doctrine of humility and restraint. It's the way for judges to do as little as possible. It is a way of looking at, you know, the original public meaning of um the wording of the documents. There's a whole bunch of definitions, but none of that is in evidence when you read the Gunn decision or when you read Dobbs. And in fact, um, there are some conservative legal scholars who are now writing, like, we don't need originalism anymore. Like, it got us where we need to be. Now we need to do, like, just straight up, you know, theological, like, let's just stop calling it the thing that we were calling it. And so I think with that said, it's really, really important to and 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 you put this so well in your question to think about this less as modes of interpretation whether you know you're thinking about like biblical exegesis or whether you're thinking about the constitution you can say okay this is the toolbox right and originalists have one toolbox and presumably living constitutionalists have another but i think under your question is the deeper question of this is not about exegesis this is about power and this is about who has the power to say what the toolbox is and who had power when the toolboxes were originally built. And so in a sense, part of the problem we're having at this moment is that Justice Alito, in his Dobbs opinion, can say what I'm doing is strict originalism. But what he's doing is actually crafting what he says originalism means. And so I think that part of and maybe this goes back to Missy's question about the approval ratings at the court. I think part of what the public is starting to see is that a doctrine that was meant to be a doctrine of judicial humility and restraint to do as little as possible has become a doctrine that is going to build a brand new world in which we allocate who has freedoms and rights and who matters and who is visible and who doesn't. That Whatever that is, it's not originalism. It's just straight up power. I got one more follow-up, Missy. I apologize, uh, but I mean, wow. <laughs> How many times do we get to, to ask these kind of questions? Um, you mentioned the religious makeup of the court, and this is the most conservative court in over a decade. Um, it seems as though they're more open about their theological convictions than ever before, especially those on the right uh, side of the court. While it is about power, Daya, are we seeing more and more uh, rulings come out of a theological conviction, but with the law used as a catalyst to render those decisions? Because we've been fighting fundamentalism for decades over here at Good Faith Media, and the same language, the same mindset, the same conclusions that we're now seeing in the public sphere, whether that is in the judicial system or in the legislative branch and sometimes in the executive branch, all of those we have heard for years and years and years, and now we're seeing it played out in the public square. How influential is or are these deeply rooted religious convictions playing out in the court? I mean, you you all are 
sort of more adept in this water than I am. I, I will just cite to Linda Greenhouse, who covered the Supreme Court for the New York Times for decades and won um, Pulitzer Prizes for it, uh, wrote, I think, a definitive piece in The Atlantic last week in which she straight up said, you know, the six justices in the majority in Dobbs were all raised Catholic. Uh, nobody says that sentence. Uh, there was a time when um, uh, uh, Jeffrey Stone, who was the dean at Chicago Law School, said with regard to another abortion case, it hurts my heart to say this, I'm paraphrasing, but the five justices in the majority were all Catholic. Justice Scalia was so angry at him for suggesting that there was a connection between the justice's personal, you know, religious beliefs and uh, doctrine that he refused to go speak at that law school for years because he just was like, it is anathema to think about the court in terms of religious framing. And I, and I want to be really careful because I think what you have just asked is, I think, the central sort of third rail of our time because religion is everywhere at the Supreme Court and it is nowhere. And we don't know how to talk about it. We don't know how to name it. As I suggested, I think that the fact that there was you know, were religious donors donating money to have access to justices to go to Christmas parties and cocktail parties and essentially bolster their theological view is insane that that was not a front page story, but it's not. And I want to have one other caveat before I fully answer it, which is the Constitution expressly forbids religious tests for higher office. We have to be incredibly careful in public discourse about claims of dual loyalties. If you go back and you read Justice Brandeis, you know, as a Jewish justice, Justice Frankfurter, uh, Justice Cardozo, the anti-Semitism on display at their confirmation hearings and the claims that they couldn't be ju good judges because they were too religious shoots through everything. So I think we 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 avoid this conversation for good reason, right? Because we don't want to suggest, as was suggested of, you know, John F. Kennedy or of Justice uh, William Brennan, uh, you know, oh, you can't be a justice and a Catholic at the same time, or you can't be president and a Catholic at the same time. So that's the minefield we're trying to work through, right? And it's why I think it took Linda Greenhouse decades to write the sentence, you know, we can't avoid the reality that all of the justices in the majority and in and, and Dobbs were raised Catholic. And I think that maybe the work that you're doing and that you're trying to, to surface is how do we have a conversation about a court that is so obviously deeply shaped by religion without running afoul of, you know, all of the worries that are legitimate about anti-religious animus in the culture? You're right. We want to be very careful in uh, making these sweeping claims about denominationalism or traditionalism because, you know, this is just a small minority that happened to be Catholic or, or happened to be uh, Protestant uh, or happened to be Jewish. Maybe a better way to frame this is that there is a theological strand that is attached to a legal and political strand that believes that the separation of church and state is a mythology and that they are doing everything they can to bring down that wall of separation in order 
for there to be a closer relationship between religion and the the judicial and legislative branches of government. Um, and it doesn't matter if it's Catholic or Protestant or Jewish, but there there is a strand there that thinks that that is a, a false concept, a false idea, and therefore, if that wall is gone, and that can allow whoever your religion you are to kind of infuse your religious conviction within society. I think that's 100% descriptively correct. And I think if we talk about it using that frame, it's easier not to run afoul of, you know, claims, essentialist claims about denominations or religions. And, and, and maybe the best evidence I have for the truth of what you're positing is that if you look at the groups that were filing religious uh, challenges, say, to the occupancy bans in houses of worship during COVID, right? It was, you know, the Roman Catholic Church and also very, very Orthodox Jewish groups, right? If you look, there's a, a really fascinating brief in Dobbs in the abortion case by a very Orthodox Jewish group um, that makes claims about when life begins that are not Jewish claims, not rooted in Jewish uh, doctrine at all. And so I think you're right. I think you are seeing the ascendancy of, you know, something that Clarence Thomas talks about a lot, which is there should just be no wall between church and state. You know, states should be allowed to have a state faith the way they did at the founding, right? And, you know, there'll be Catholic states and there'll be Protestant states. Probably won't be a lot of Muslim states under that construction. But I think that... um, you know, the, the open desire to erode the wall of separation, I think, is bipartisan. I think you're exactly right. It's not, uh, you know, just a, you know, project of this or that sect. And the, the kind of great success of Orthodox Jews who have lashed themselves to, um, you know, some of the, the, the groups that are making uh, religious claims on behalf of other faiths, I think is really an example of this isn't about this religion or that religion. It's about adherents of religions who want there to be no interference uh, by the state in their activities, although they still want funding, to be clear, right? They still want uh, tax-exempt status. They want um, to get government money for, for education. They, they essentially want there to be absolutely no, no notion of a separation of church and state, either in school funding or school prayer or what is taught in curricula. One other tiny turn here is that this is also of a piece with the move to discredit and defund public education, right? I mean, this is coming hand in hand with a move to, you know, bolster charter schools and religious schools and homeschooling, because it's all a part of sort of doing away with the uh, machinery of the secular state. Maybe the very last point I would make, just because I think it so illuminates What we've been talking about is that if folks remember one of the most important cases last year in terms of church state involves uh, Coach Kennedy at the Bremerton School District who's doing expressly religious uh, sectarian prayer at the 50-yard line on football 
uh, at football games, and the court determines uh, that his religious freedom uh, allows him to continue to do this. And the thing that's so troubling to me about that case is that the words private, privacy, privacy, private to describe Coach Kennedy's prayer show up time and time and time again in the opinion that this is a private prayer. He wants to pray in private. You know, sure, he's on the 50-yard line. Sure, there are cameras rolling. Sure, there are students that feel they have no option but to take a knee with him. But it's private. And I thought about how many times that word private shows up in the theological context and how many times it does not show up in Dobbs, right? Where a decision is no longer between a woman and her physician or her partner. Now the decision is between her and her state legislator. And so I just think that that, it goes to your fundamental point that religion is private and yet it's everywhere. And that, you know, pregnancy and childbirth, which really is private, is the most intimate sphere is utterly public. And so I just think we've completely upended what is private and what is public and put a completely theological valence around that whole conversation. Well, Dolly Lithwick, uh, she is the author of Lady Justice, Women, the Law, and the Battle to Save America. The book is fantastic. Make certain that you go pick a copy of it up wherever you buy books or listen to books. Uh, and I... I really suggest listening to it because we get to hear you read it. It's just wonderful. <laughs> so, uh, so, Dahlia, thank you so much for being a guest uh, for us uh, or with us uh, on Good Faith Weekly. But before we let you go, Missy's got one last question for you. Dahlia, first of all, thank you. And let's not forget our assignment to do um, the Polly Murray tote bags. I can't. I, I'm going to get my order <laughs> in right now. And the flash mob song. And the flash mob song. And the flash, and mob, the flash song. mob song. Oh, I'm, I've been thinking about that We're this whole time. We're going to be very time. busy this weekend. <laughs> we are. Okay, so Dahlia, as you know, our tagline at Good Faith Media is there's more to tell. So in light of our conversation today and the work that you do, what is your more to tell? I'm very glad that you asked this question. I've been sitting with it. And I think I want to go back to Polly Murray, if I may, because uh, another thing I didn't know about Polly Murray, who did all of this kind of constitutional law with her bare fingers, is that at the very end of her life, the law wasn't enough for her. <laughs> and she was ordained in the Episcopal Church, the first woman, I believe, ordained. Um, and I want to, I just want to say that the way she got there was by realizing that what mattered was kindness <laughs> and goodness and service. And uh, that she kind of walked away from being one of the most singular voices and faces in constitutional repair to do something where it was just really important for her to minister. <laughs> and I think about this all the time, in part because, you know, my fantasy is to leave the law and go to divinity school. But also, I think because the two are so hard to decouple, right? <laughs> like the work that we've been talking about of justice and of um, repair is not just I mean, it's also fundamentally like the work of like all of the best faith traditions. And so I just I think that the, the, the more thing for me is to just be really mindful of the fact and tell me if I'm wrong, Missy, that we come out of faith traditions that privilege like widows and orphans for a reason. It's not like we're not about making other people suffer. <laughs> we're about like this work of kind of 
seeing that which is hidden and broken and lifting it up. And so I just like I am thinking that the more is to do the work of democracy. It is to do the work of rebuilding and and as as you said, you know, imagining something much better, but to do it from a place of just like deep solicitude in sort of service of kindness and smallness and vulnerability. Love that. That will preach. That, <laughs> that will preach. Yes. Fantastic. So, Dolly, it. thank you so much for joining us. Please come back anytime. I loved being here. Thank you. Well, Missy, I don't know about you, but I'm so energized right now. I mean, I really do think that, like, I think she and I said, I don't remember if it was on the interview or afterwards, that, you know, we need Supreme Court jerseys and we need to be cheering them. <laughs> <laughs> um, it was so great. And I bet she would have aced the Supreme Court quiz I gave you a few weeks ago. Oh my gosh. Yes, absolutely. <laughs> she would have probably not only aced it, she would have given commentary. She'd have had footnotes with those answers. That's right. I'm sure my questions were a little flawed, so I'm sure she would have let me know. But I, um, like I said in the interview, and I was absolutely meant it, I had told you, you know, maybe we shouldn't be talking about the Supreme Court again. Um, but after just reading the book and hearing her on other interviews, just realizing how important it is, but but the thing is, she makes it so interesting and brings this um, entity to life in such a way that you just you want to follow it and learn. And um, obviously, there's some points of concern there. So, my hope is that through her book and through other avenues, that that we are all going to be better informed. Like I've said many times before on this podcast, when we know better, we do better. Mm-hmm. We know better. We know we need to be more active and engaged and involved in this process, and hopefully we'll be able to do that. Yeah, you know, I've been thinking about that conversation that we had earlier, and maybe we need to just kind of reframe it because, you know, you and I, especially being in church work for so long, uh, we encountered parishioners and friends and families who have faced very serious illnesses. Mm -hmm. And when they face those illnesses, they talk about them a lot. And they're part of that conversation. And it's part of the healing process for them. It's part of energizing them to battle that illness. And if we really truly believe, which I do, that democracy is hanging in the balance, then this is what we're going to talk about. (laughs) This is so important that we need to continue this conversation. And even though it seems like it's all-consuming, there are moments in history and moments in time where it is all consuming. And so uh, it is so important. And when you have guests as significant and as wise as Dahlia, uh, I just say, let them talk and let them educate us because uh, she's just, she was brilliant. She was brilliant. I just want to revisit the person we opened up talking about, which was uh, Polly Murray Mm -hmm. and tell everyone You've got to go get this book, if nothing else, to read and learn about Polly Murray. Um, just an, an unsung hero um, in our history, and I don't want to give it away. I want you to go get the book. It, but it got me to thinking about other sort of unsung female heroes in our lives, and I thought maybe I'd ask you if you, you have a couple you'd like to mention. Well, I'm so glad you asked, Missy, because I've got a couple. I've got one fictional. And then a few non-fictional. Okay. So let me begin with the fictional. So 
I'm a child of the 70s, right? I'm aware. And as a child of the 70s, I mean, that's when like the superhero television series really started going. I mean, we had Batman and Robin. We had Superman. We had the the Justice League on Cartoon Saturday morning. And so it had all of these very uh, strong, masculine superhero figures. And, and I would emulate them from time to time. I'd try to do the Superman curl in my hair and stuff like that. You do have a great Superman curl. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. Um, but this is going to, uh, and I, I hope this comes across as genuine because it truly is one of my favorite characters to emulate as a child was not Superman, was not Batman, was not even the Hulk. It was Jesus, wasn't it? It could have been Jesus. I bet. <laughs> or were you more a John the Baptist guy? Well, you know, since I, you know. Paul, had, I well, see you as a Paul. Right? Yeah, well, really. <laughs> <laughs> but to say some things, misogyny, <laughs> you know. That's right. Uh, no, the superhero that I emulated the most and pretended in my play was Wonder Woman. I was just fascinated with her, uh, her backstory, uh, her her strength, her wisdom, uh, her skills. Uh, there was just a lot about her that really, really inspired me as a kid and what I thought was fascinating about it was I didn't necessarily think of her as a female or a woman I just thought of her as a superhero that I wanted to emulate and I wanted to be like as a kid and you know I would strap I would I would take the sports tape and tape my wrist and I would go pow 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 pow, pow and save you know but did tape. you have the underoos oh no they didn't oh, make well. See, the, well, see the, I did. I have. A I, I know, somewhere. but they. I'm sorry, I hate to tell you this. They did not make Wonder Woman underoos for guys. For guys. Oh, <laughs> well, you know. Sorry uh, about you. Yeah, right. But I mean, I had, I had the, the 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 lasso and everything. I just, uh, I just really liked her and just really admired her. Uh, so that was a vivid memory for me as a kid. Well, and I think the point you brought up was so important. You started out as a kid just knowing that was a superhero yeah. and that was really cool and um, that was amazing. And I look forward forward to the day, I don't know if I'll ever see it, where books like this about these women who are changing and impacting society are just, like you said, just books about amazing people that we don't have to necessarily qualify that, that we're just, women are at the table as much in the same way, in the same rooms, with the same voice, with the same power, Mm -hmm. with the same influence. As men. And then there were two, and, and, and there's, of course, a lot of family members that I aspired and or inspired by and, you know, just looked up to or were heroes of mine. But two people outside of my family were both educators. One was an elementary school teacher, Wanda Clark, and she taught civics uh, at Walter Reed Elementary School on the east side of Tulsa. And she taught these lessons, but she also opened me up to my own culture. Growing up as an indigenous uh, kid, uh, citizen of the Muscogee Creek tribe, she wanted to make certain that I knew about my ancestral roots. She wanted to teach me about the real history of Oklahoma and how important it was uh, for me that I was native. Uh, Because I wasn't getting that anywhere else, uh, you know, with... Uh, just the stereotypes and the derogatory comments just growing up in eastern Oklahoma. But Mrs. Clark really showed me that 
being indigenous, being native was something to be proud of. And I really appreciated that from, uh, from her. And then the second was in my college years. Now, I know you're going to find this unbelievable, but I was a right-wing fundamentalist fanatic. Well, that's I mean, really what attracted me to you, <laughs> I'm just going to say. I mean, I was a Rush Limbaugh, Jerry Falwell, Pat Robertson mm, kind of guy. Keep it going. <laughs> <laughs> And so it was my senior or junior year in college where I took a sociology class and Professor Anderson uh, was the teacher of the class. And she challenged me when I would get out of line in class or I'd get out in line with my papers and she would challenge me. And because she stood up to me and challenged my thinking, it forced me to rethink what I had learned or what I was learning, what I was buying into. And that led me down a path eventually to my seminary days where I began to see the world differently. And I, I never got to thank her. And I don't even know if she's still at the college that I attended. But if she's out there listening, Professor Anderson, <laughs> thank you so much for turning this little fundamentalist into somebody who has a heart and believes in a broader world. Yes, thank you. <laughs> thank you for all of Even that. Even though you're not as attracted to me now as uh, you were a minute well, ago. You know, <laughs> can't beat a good fundamentalist. Come on. Uh, so how about you? Well, as I, I know throughout the day as we were preparing to record this outro, as we so call it. Um, I was kind of thinking about, because in the theme through the book, I mean, she talks about well-known women, Stacey Abrams, Sally mm -hmm. Yates, some names that we all know sure. and are very familiar with, but she also talks about like Polly Murray and Becca Heller, you know, some of these women who kind of weren't so much in the spotlight. And so it got me to thinking about, you know, unsung heroes in my life, uh, women and, and, you know, for which I have many, but, but one in particular I was thinking about was, um, my aunt Rita, we talk about often, um, who grew, who just was everybody's favorite in our world. And she was very active and involved in her theater, community theater was truly an unsung hero and entertainer, um, in her context. And I, in preparation for this interview, I thought I'm going to go see, you know, what on, on social media, what people were saying, she's never been, she was never on social media before right. she passed away. Um, but she was real involved in her community theater. And after she passed away, they actually ended up uh, building an annex and it's named after her. Mm -hmm. So I went to the Facebook page just to kind of um, find out really specifically what they had, the, the actual technical name for the structure, because I wanted to get it right. And I just, I found that all of the posts that they've put up on her birthday every year, and her birthday's coming up soon. And you talk about an unsung hero. There's just comment after comment about her and her comedic talent and um, what she did for the theater community. And... 
you know, many of us in her family, we knew she was involved and we, we knew these things peripherally, but she never would have said it. We never sure. would have, you know, heard any of this from her. Um, but, you know, she inspired our oldest son to go into um, theater and he's now out in LA working. And so I just, um, I don't know. I, I, as I sit here and I, Rita was famous for ordering her margarita on the rocks, hold the rocks. Um, so tonight in her honor, I am drinking my margarita on the rocks without the rocks um, in tribute to her. But I just, I, I hope that everybody, our listeners will, will think and remember the unsung kind of, women heroes in our lives, the, the, the women yeah. who are doing the organizing, who are doing the work, who are, I, I know, um, Dahlia mentions a, a couple of different times in the book about women. And I think one of them was Becca Heller that he, they thought they were so close to a certain point in the 2016 election. And, and after the, um, women's healthcare mm-hmm. uh, decision that we, we referenced in 2016 and you think you're making progress and then to hit such a wall, and, you know, a couple of times she mentioned women just being so tired, mm-hmm. you know, and, and, but yet getting up to do the work again, because that's in their blood, Absolutely. because they have to, and because it's worth fighting for. And, uh, that was just a really just impactful theme of the book is just the women who continually get up every day and fight for justice and fight for rights um, for everyone. Absolutely. Well, I know Aunt Rita uh, inspired me along with many of your family members. And as you said, many in the uh, theater community down in Texas, Um, you know, Wanda Clark for me, uh, Professor Anderson, and so many other strong female presence in our lives. And Dahlia writes about some of the most influential female lawyers in the last six to seven years. Again, you've got to go pick up this book. It's called Lady Justice. Uh, You will not be disappointed in reading it or listening to the book wherever you listen to books. But I want to bring in one quick question. Uh, I want to end with a quick, sure, go ahead. Uh, not a quick, but one of the quotes from the book that I, I, I made a note about um, that I think is kind of a great place to leave off for all of us. Um, she says, one of the lessons I took about migrant teens at the border is that you can win and you can win big in the courts and still face immense backsliding if you aren't doing mass political organizing at the same time. As Amiri, Bridget Amiri, put it to me, quote, I think that courts are incredibly important and they have stopped a lot of bad stuff from happening. But I think that if people think that the courts are going to be the place that saves us, we will be complacent about all the other work. Mm. And I pulled that because I think it's important for those of us who did kind of sit back or who have sat back and just trusted that the law would work its process and that um, justice will prevail eventually, that if we're just counting on this institution to do the work, and to make the change and to keep striving for justice and equality, that's probably not going to be what happens, that we can't be complacent, that it takes everyone to continue, as we've said, to fight for justice, to fight for equality, to be diligent, to be aware, and to keep up the work and to, to, you know, what's the proverb or the saying about 
lots of hands make little work. Mm-hmm. What is that? Yeah. I don't know. Is that what it is? Yeah. I mean, yeah, it's your proverb. Maybe I should have had rocks <laughs> in the margarita. I don't know. But, you know, if yeah. we're all working together to fight for justice, then maybe some of these um, women who are just so tired and so overburdened won't be as much. Absolutely. And that's a good way to end the pod this week. But before we let you go, one of the things we want to invite you to do is that as you listen to the pod, if you find this on social media, put in the comments somewhere, wherever you see this advertised, let us know who inspired you because there's so many inspirational, strong female presence out there that are unsung heroes who are doing the work, who are changing the world. Let's hear those stories because I think there are plentiful and all of us could use some good news these days. So thank you for tuning in. Again, the book is Lady Justice. Dahlia Lithwick is our guest today, and it's been a pleasure, and we hope you have a great week. You've been listening to Good Faith Weekly, hosted by Mitch and Missy Randall. This weekly podcast from Good Faith Media discusses matters of faith and culture. Subscribe wherever you get your podcast and give us a like and a glowing review. We produce the podcast out of Norman, Oklahoma. Our music comes from Pond 5. And we're supported by listeners like you. Learn more about us at goodfaithmedia.org.